take your Bibles and turn to Obadiah. Obadiah. Yeah, it's after Amos and before Jonah. I'm going to give you a little bit of help there. All right. Sandwich right between those two books, Amos and Jonah. Obadiah. You know, there's a story about Muhammad Ali who was seated in an aircraft that was preparing for takeoff. A flight attendant, noticing that he did not have his seatbelt fastened, asked him kindly, Excuse me, sir, would you mind fastening your seatbelt? As the story goes, Muhammad Ali looked up with that saucy grin of his and said in a slow, gravelly voice, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Without missing a beat, the flight attendant packed a punch with this quick reply, Superman don't need no airplane, so how about fastening up? <laughs> well, I expect that Ali was joking, but if he thought he was Superman, he would be very delusional. <laughs> well, the people to whom God's message came in Obadiah were delusional. They were spiritually delusional. And I want you to see that as we go through this little book, and especially as we introduce it today. So follow with me as I read the first four verses. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. As you can see from verse 1, this is a message from the Lord God, Yahweh, through a vision that's given the man Obadiah concerning Edom. On the one hand, this little book says nothing about him. That is Obadiah. His residence, his occupation, his family, his age, so on and so forth. We don't know any of those things. He is simply a man whom God uses to prophesy his message. As one writer put it, he is a man whose priority was to deliver with total fidelity whatever the sovereign Lord said. He was a servant of the one who shatters the silence and reveals his will. In fact, Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. And he is a servant of the Lord, bringing his message to Edom. That's what this whole book is about. Now, on the other hand, we do know something about Edom, or the Edomites. We do. They were the descendants of Esau and enemies of Israel, their brother. Before Israel, it was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Yes, Esau and Jacob were enemies. 
And that enmity goes back to the very beginning when God told Isaac and Rebekah that two nations were in her womb and the older would serve the younger. Genesis 25, 21 to 23. And it all became evident when Esau sold his birthright as Jacob deceitfully gained the blessing. And you know the story. And really, God was in all of that, by the way. In a very mysterious way, it was a part of his plan and his will. And though this relationship between Jacob and Esau got somewhat patched up, the descendants of Esau never forgot. In fact, years later, when Israel left Egypt to go to Canaan, you know, they left and they wandered actually in the wilderness for 40 years until the old generation had died off because of their sin. And a new generation had raised up. And then they would go in and conquer the land of Canaan and take over. Well, when that happened, the Edomites refused to let them pass through their land. Numbers 20 makes that very clear. In fact, they had to go all the way down to the Red Sea, around the land of Edom, up to Canaan. Several hundred miles out of the way. They weren't happy about it. And yet God did direct them to do such. This enmity even extended to the days of Herod, who was an Idumean. That's just a Greek word for the Edomites. And what did Herod try to do? Kill Jesus. Yeah. In fact, the occasion of this prophecy in Obadiah reveals the hateful heart of the Edomites, their brother. And we see that in verses 11 to 14. We will talk about that when we get to those verses. And so even in the occasion of this prophecy, there is hatred coming from the Edomites with regards to their brother. Also, another important factor about the Edomites is where they lived. This is so significant. They settled just south of Israel on the southern edge of the Dead Sea, all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea. Now, there was a good number of us who went to Israel about a dozen years ago, 12 of us. And we were down in that area. And from yeah, the southern edge of the Dead Sea all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba, it's a resort area today. Okay, and so we were able to be in that area. We were able to go out on a boat on the Red Sea at the Gulf there and and swim around and have a barbecue and everything. It was a good time. Well, that area is very rugged and mountainous. Its capital city at one time was Sila, which today is Petra, means home in the rocks. In fact, uh, while we were there, we also went across over into Jordan to see Petra. And it's just a tourist attraction. It's not a city anymore. And really, uh, you park in a parking lot area and you walk for about a mile through this gorge that's got two basically high cliffs on either side. It's only like about 30 or 40 feet across. But you walk through this gorge for about an hour. And then all of a sudden you come to the city of Petra, a city that was carved out in the rocks. It's like one of the seventh wonders of the world. It's incredible. Um, 
it's even been on one of the episodes, I think, of uh, the Lauders, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I think you can even see uh, see that. You can even go on the uh, Internet and see what it looks like. It's It's incredible. But yes, it was a very mountainous area. And their natural fortresses gave them significant strength and security, especially along the king's highway, which goes north and south through the land. Very important roads. And so Boyce points this out. They were free to wage war and levy tribute on others while themselves were being relatively free of outside interference. And so the Edomites developed a heart attitude that God addressed here in Obadiah. In fact, right at the very beginning. And what is that heart attitude? It's pride. Look with me at verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? And so, yes, God addresses this through Obadiah. And though it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, it packs a powerful punch, I'll tell you right now. You know, pride is really the problem of all mankind, isn't it? It sure is. It's actually the heart to all of our sin. We do what we do because we want that. And we don't want what God wants. That's why we sin. We want what we want, not what God wants. And so it's the heart to all sin. And God's message through the prophet should be a warning sign for us today, even the church, where pride manifests itself over and over again. Even Paul, in speaking to the church at Corinth, in chapters 1 and 2, says to them, there is divisions here quarrels and fightings among you. And then later in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And then in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says these words, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Yeah, you want what you want and you're not getting what you want and what you expect. And so there's wars and fightings among you. You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then James goes on in verse 6 to tell us what that's all about. What's at the heart of it all? He says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's it. It's pride. And so as I introduce this little book today, I simply want to begin by asking and answering two questions, two questions concerning pride and trust that God will use it to get your attention. I will tell you it has gotten my attention. I started studying this about three weeks ago, reading it while I was on vacation and just meditating upon it before really getting down to the brass tacks of studying this. But it has gotten my attention. Because why? Pride is a problem. Even in my own heart as your pastor. In fact, I find it very difficult as your pastor to even preach this message. 
I feel somebody else needs to be preaching this, not me. I need to be sitting where you're sitting, receiving this message. Because I know I struggle with pride. And I can't help but think that you struggle with the same thing. And so it should get our attention, this little book. It should lead you to examine your hearts this morning, and I trust that it will. And Lord Welling leads you to repentance if necessary. That's really the goal of sharing what I'm going to share with you through these two questions. And this is not going to be very long. It doesn't have to be long. But I will tell you, what I'm going to give you is like a punch in the gut as it has for me. And so what's the first question? What should we start with? What is pride? What is pride? The word arrogance there in verse 3 is a good translation of the Hebrew word zadon. It's derived from the verb zid, meaning to boil up, to seethe. And most often it refers to food or water being heated up. And interestingly, that root verb there occurs a number of times in the account of Esau when he sold his birthright for a pot of stew that was boiled up for him. Now, of course, in this text, it's applied figuratively as inflated self-exaltation. That's really what's captured by the word arrogance, inflated self-exaltation. As one commentator said, and I really like this, the Edomites' arrogance was presumptuous, whelming over their bounds, portrayed by the stew their ancestors ate. Yeah. You see, pride is worship of self. And we call that what? Hmm? Idolatry. That's right. It's giving to ourselves what belongs to God. Honor, rights, power, privileges. We could go on. <laughs> That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God. Yeah, takes the picture off of yourself and puts it where it belongs, and that is God. As you know, it began with Satan, whose character is described, actually, in the king of Babylon, found in Isaiah chapter 14. I think it would be good for us to go there. So holding your space here in Obadiah, go to Isaiah with me. Isaiah 14. And what you find here in Isaiah 14 is a description of Satan found in the king of Babylon. You see, he's behind this king and all that he does. And so this description is for the king of Babylon, but who's behind it is Satan himself. Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Yes, that kind of attitude which was in Satan was also in the king of Babylon. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? We know about Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? Yes, in Daniel chapters 2 through 4. The pride that was in his heart. In fact, this same description is found also in Ezekiel uh, 28, I believe it is, beginning with verse 12, concerning the king of Tyre. So you see this description a couple of times in Scripture. And so it was Satan who had tempted Eve with pride in the Garden of Eden, right? What does it say there in Genesis 3, 5, and 6? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In fact, the rest of that verse says this, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What is evident there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What we find in the world, it began right there with Adam and Eve, and they fell. Pride was at the heart of that. As Spurgeon once said, pride is the firstborn son of hell. Wow. (laughs) As only he could put it. Yes. Pride is the firstborn son of hell. And so, beloved, since it characterizes Satan, you should want to avoid it. I would say even more, you should want to avoid it because why? God hates it. That's why. God hates it. How do we know that? Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. These six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. And what's the very first thing he says? Haughty eyes or a proud look. God hates it. That's why we should avoid it. It's ugly, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. And so may God help us by his grace to put it off in our hearts and lives. That's pride. That leads us right into another question that's important to ask here is this. Why is pride so devastating? And it's answered in this passage of Scripture. Why is pride so devastating? Well, beloved, look with me at what it says again there in verse 3. We're going to start right there. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? What is one reason why pride is so devastating? It deceives the heart. That's what this text says. It deceives the heart. The Hebrew word speaks to being tricked or beguiled. And because of Edom's natural fortresses, which are mentioned in the first part of the verse there, where it says, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place. Because of their natural fortresses, the people were tricked 
into thinking that no one could conquer them. Just as they expressed in the latter part of verse 3 when they said this, Who will bring me down to earth? Oh my. Who will bring me down to earth? No doubt they were strong and safe from human forces, but they did not consider God to whom they were vulnerable. You see, pride keeps God out of the picture, doesn't it? It sure does. The big I (laughs) gets in the way all the time. It tricks you into trusting everything else but Him. And that's clearly seen not only here in verse 3, but also in verses 5 to 9 as we're going to consider next week. The proof of pride over the next several verses of Scripture. And so I pray that your heart be not deceived by pride. Really, pride has the attitude that you don't need God. That's dangerous. That's devastating. And if you have that mindset, you're delusional, spiritually speaking. Look with me, if you would, holding your space here, nobody, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I believe you're familiar with this psalm. We've read it on occasion. I want to go back to it. Psalm 2. And I just want to read the first three verses and then the last three verses of this psalm. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising or imagining a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You know what? That's among the nations. And you know what? We might as well consider the U.S. of A. A part of that as well. We're leaving God out of the picture all the time. And that's why we're going the direction we're going. That's dangerous. That's delusional. And God will deal with it. So notice what he says at the end of this psalm. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Honor Him. Get the big eye out of the picture. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now listen to these words from Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6. How blessed is He whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Once again, Proverbs 16, 18 to 20, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he 
who trusts in the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. But you see, the Edomites weren't trusting the Lord. They were trusting themselves. And beloved, how many times are we trusting ourselves and not God? Quite often, aren't we? That's just pride manifested in our hearts. And so I pray that you be not deceived by pride. Instead, may God in His grace keep you always trusting in Him. That's why God's counsel in His Word to trust Him is so significant. I've said this before. There have been many times that I've counseled folks and I've told them to trust in the Lord. It's, they need that message. But somehow it falls on deaf ears. The heart is hard to that. They've heard it so many times. But that is wise counsel. Because you're getting away from what I want to do to do what God wants you to do. Trusting Him, no matter what you may be facing. So one reason why pride is so devastating is because it deceives the heart. The Edomites were deceived. They were delusional. Who can bring us down? Wow. Wow. So there's another reason revealed why pride is so devastating. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 and then verse 4. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy or messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. Verse 4. Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there... I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so what is another reason why pride is so devastating? It's simply this. It's judged by God. It's judged by God. This is not only stated and emphasized here at the beginning of this prophecy. It's also reiterated over and over again in the following verses. I think every verse from verse 5 through 10 mentions it. And then you see it again in verse 15. And then you see it again in verse 18. There is judgment that's coming by God for pride. And we're going to consider this more in the weeks to come, but I'm just introducing it to you right now. As you can see, verse 4 there is a response by God to what the Edomites said from their heart in verse 3. And what was that? Who will bring me down? And what does God say? I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Clearly God is in control, isn't He? You bet. Back up in verse 2, what does He say? Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. That second phrase actually is describing their smallness among the nations. They are despised. And yet, interestingly, God was going to use man, Edom's alliances with other nations, 
to deceive them and accomplish his purposes. You have to see this in verse 1 and also in verse 7. Look what he says there in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And you could almost skip to verse 2 where he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. But you have some parenthetical insight here as to how it's going to happen. We have heard a report from the Lord. And an envoy, messenger, has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. And who is this? It's their alliances in whom they trust. That's going to deceive them. How do I know this? Look down at verse 7. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. God is in charge. (laughs) He's going to bring judgment to the very people that they're trusting. They're not trusting God. They're trusting them. And so he's going to bring judgment through them. All for his glory. I like what one commentator said. The conspiring nations had their own ambitious interests in mind. But unknown to themselves, they were only pawns in the hands of the Lord. It is the Lord who places himself at the head of this undertaking. Who urges the nations, arise, let us go against her for battle. Yeah. Turn with me, if you would, to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. We've been in Habakkuk. It's just a few more minor prophets following Obadiah. Habakkuk. If you remember rightly, when we were in Habakkuk, God told the prophet to pronounce judgment against Judah. And he did. Faithfully did it. But God wasn't bringing it about right away. And so Habakkuk is sort of confused. You told me to pronounce judgment. When is this going to come? The answer comes in verses 5 to 11. Follow as I read. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Yes, Babylon was even filled with pride. But God was going to use them to bring judgment upon Judah for her sin. And yet notice what the end of verse 11 says, Then they will sweep through the like a wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Yeah, God is going to judge them as well. And so, yes, 
God is in control. He's in charge. Always, right, beloved? Absolutely. And in Obadiah, he was providentially bringing about the Edomites' doom. You know, it's been said that these people were poster children for Proverbs 16, 18. The memory verse that you have for today. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Edomites were poster children of that verse of Scripture. In fact, in Proverbs 18 and verse 12, it says this, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Oh, beloved, may you, even as God's children, be warned about pride in your hearts. Its ugly head is there a lot, more often than we think. If you don't take this seriously, God will bring you down, just as He told Edom. That should get your attention. I know it has mine. I know that there have been times when my heart's been prideful and the Lord has brought me down and He's graciously done it (laughs) to teach me a lesson. This is one of those things that has been on my own heart personally over the years. It was about a dozen years ago, I think I've shared this with you before, that my wife and I were going on vacation to Branson. And uh, there was a book that just had come out by Wayne Mack entitled Humility, the Forgotten Virtue. I said, I I think we'll take this and we'll read it together. We'll read through Philippians, which addresses pride in the second chapter. This will be good. Now, it was good, by the way, okay? But I can tell you that all throughout that week that we were gone, I felt like God was kicking me in the gut over and over and over again. Yeah. I didn't enjoy that vacation too well. (laughs) But it was good. It really was because I, I needed that. And even since then, I've read a number of other resources that have been helpful. Not only humility, the forgotten virtue, but there's also um, the blessings of humility uh, by uh, Jerry Bridges, where he talks about this matter through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 to 12 there. There's also another book out there, uh, I forget it right now, uh, on pride. I've read them all. And right now I'm in the midst of reading another book, but as I've been working through <laughs> Obadiah, I said to myself, i got to go back to this again and read this. Pride is in our hearts in ways that we don't even think. And then when we start seeing it, it just brings us low. But that's where God wants us to be. Where we're out of the picture and He's in the picture. And beloved, as your pastor, I don't want God to bring me down. And as your pastor, I don't want you to be brought down. So may God help you with this. I trust that this message has gotten your attention. 
is already leading you to examine yourselves and starting the process of repentance. You know, another question that I could have asked and answered this morning is this. How do I put pride to death? You notice I didn't ask and answer that question because I'm saving it for the end. We're going to do a a topical sermon, just addressing how do I put this to death because it's there. And we need to know how. And so I'll save that for the end. But for now, to sort of get the process started, turn with me to James 4. James chapter 4. I read from this earlier. James 4. There was conflicts, quarrels in the hearts of those early Jewish believers. And this is what... James tells them, beginning in verse 6, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We want to know God's grace in our lives, right? It's by being humble. So what does that look like? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So may God bless you as you go through that endeavor. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word this morning. And there's quite a punch here from this prophet. Oh God, you have led him. You led him to share the message that he did with Edom. It's a message that we need as your people because... You're not always in our picture like you should be. You're not foremost. Even in our hearts, there are times when we act as though we don't need you. How delusional. Forgive us, O God. Help us this morning to do some serious self-examination and begin this process of repentance as we see James describe in his epistle. Without you, we are nothing. Help us to be mindful of that and to bring glory to our Lord and Savior in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.